Turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 22. I will let you know that tonight's message will not be a typical expositional message only on one passage. I'll be uh, going to all four, well, I'll be going to different gospels throughout the message. Uh, I'll begin anchoring in John 13, and then we'll move to several different texts as we go to get a sense of all the events that take place. Luke chapter 22. Let's bow our heads again together. Heavenly Father, as we consider this night and Friday, Good Friday morning, God, I pray that you would allow us now to consider what our sin cost the Lord Jesus. I pray, God, that we would see your love in sending your Son, and Lord Jesus, I pray that we would see your love in giving yourself in accordance with your Father's will to die for your bride, the church, and to save us from our sins. God, I pray that you would, again, make fresh to us the events of these days, and I pray we would be impacted by them. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So earlier this afternoon is when Jesus sent the disciples to begin to get the room ready for Passover, as we read at the beginning of the service. And uh, as I give times tonight, some of the timestamps are in the Bible, some of them are educated guesses, so I'm, I'm just going to kind of give general times. But let's just say that an hour and a half ago or so, the disciples get to that upper room, probably in the upper city of Jerusalem, and they all gather together around uh, this table. They would have been sitting low to the ground. Remember the idea of laying your head on someone's bosom or chest? The idea would be they would be very close to each other, and after they ate, they would even lean to their side, and they'd be very close in fellowship with each other. And they all gather together at this meal. Now, th this, this has struck me. Sinclair Ferguson is the one that, that really pointed this out to me. I hadn't thought about this enough. But in the very context of the, of the Last uh, Supper, which was a Passover meal that Jesus uh, showed, was ultimately pointing to himself, this is the attitude of the disciples on that night. Luke 22, and you can look, Jesus is mentioning the elements of the Last Supper in verses 14 to 23. And then look at, look at verse 24. After mentioning the betrayal, verse 24, here is the attitude of the disciples. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. That is amazing. They are sitting at a Passover that Jesus is transforming into the Lord's Supper. And Jesus is saying, the Passover lamb that must die, remember the blood put on the doorposts of the house so that the angel of death would pass over it? As they're celebrating that meal, Jesus is saying to them that for 1,400 years, we as Jewish people, he would say, have been celebrating this meal, and ultimately, it was all pointing to tonight. I am the true Passover lamb. Just like none of the bones of the Passover lamb would be broken, none of my bones will be broken, John will later point out on the cross. My blood will be shed as the innocent, spotless one, and as the blood of Christ is applied to our life, God's righteous judgment will pass over us, and it will not touch us. 
This is the most astonishing claim imaginable. And in the midst of Jesus making that claim, the disciples begin a debate about which of them is the greatest. Not how Jesus is clearly the greatest. No, that's not what they're debating. They're debating which of them. Is it, is it, is it Peter? Is it James? Is it John? Who, who's the greatest at this particular table? I mean, if there, do you see the, the absolute tenderness and graciousness of Jesus in the way he deals with his stumbling and flawed disciples like Peter, James, and John, and like you and I? They just don't seem to have a clue at this moment what is going on. So let's turn to a, a main text for right now, John chapter 13 to your right. John chapter 13. I want to spend a little bit of time here on the washing of the disciples' feet. John 13, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who are in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, let me stop right in the middle of that sentence. This is an astonishing way to open this scene. You can't say it in a more epical way than this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, dot, dot, dot. How would you expect that sentence to be finished? If it was, if it was you or I in this verse, if we were in Jesus' position, all authority is yours. All the riches, all the power, all the sovereignty are yours. It says here, the Father had given all things into his hands. He had come from God. He was going back to God. What would he do? How would he use his power? And that's where the contrast comes with Jesus so often, is it not? In Jesus, you have this meeting between high glory and unimaginable humility. It's the mixture between his absolute holiness and yet his spending time with sinners and sharing the good news with sinners. You have this juxtaposition of his absolute power and yet his chosen weakness on the cross. His ability to be worshipped by myriads of angels and yet his choice to be put in a place where he'd be spit upon and mocked. It's this incredible conjunction of things in Christ that make him so astonishing. All authority, all things given to him, what does he do? Verse 4, so he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Sinclair Ferguson said, if you take this passage, John 13, 1 through 11, actually 1 through 12, if you take that passage and you put it side by side with a well-known text, Philippians chapter 2, you will find a lot of parallels. You remember in Philippians 2, Jesus, although he was equal with God, he was in the form of God. He did not count his equality with God, something to be grasped or exploited to his own advantage. What did he do? Instead, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being found in human form. He humbled himself. He was obedient 
unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above all names, the name of Jesus. Every tongue would confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the pattern. The pattern is worshiped in glory, chosen humility, emptying nothingness. He did not stop being God. That's not what he emptied himself of. He was still God, but he took away all of his uh, prerogatives. He came and he emptied himself. He became a humble human being. He lived as a humble servant and he died an ignominious death. He was buried at the lowest point and then he was exalted to heaven. And John 13, the washing of the disciples' feet, is Jesus, I'm, I really do think this is something, if you haven't heard this, something to consider. I think Jesus is acting out the parable of his incarnation and exaltation in these verses with the washing of the disciples' feet. Because you remember, he's about to say, when I wash your feet, is it representing something more than washing your feet? It represents what? He's about to tell you. It represents my cleansing you of your sins. And he says, I ha- you have to let me do this because this is what I'm about to do tomorrow. And so what Jesus is doing is he, he went from the head of the table, the position of honor, Instead, he took off his outer robe. He took on the robe of a servant. He took on the position of a servant, a basin. He went down low where the sin is, right? He washed the feet, symbolically washing sin. And then he retook his position of glory at the head of the table. It's as though he's acting out his full incarnation, hum- humiliation, and exaltation in this particular passage. And, and Sinclair Ferguson has some wonderful thoughts on that very thing. Look at verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See, you know this probably. In the ancient world, streets were dirty. They did not wear closed-toed shoes. You're walking around either barefoot or with sandals, and you're walking around as your primary mode of transportation. Every day this week, Jesus has been coming in and out of Jerusalem. He will walk over the hill of the Mount of Olives, and he will stay in Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And then he will spend the night there on Saturday night, and then he'll ride the donkey in to Jerusalem this past Sunday, and he comes in to the exaltation of the crowds in the evening, and he returns back to Bethany and spends the night. Monday morning, he comes back from Bethany, back over the, the Mount of Olives. He comes down, he goes into the temple, and he cleanses the temple. He flips the tables of the money changers over, and he begins to engage in discussion and debate with the religious leaders of his day. Wednesday, same kind of activity. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Yes or no? Those are happening this week on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, what do you think? Of, what's your view of the resurrection, Jesus? The Sadducees ask, and on and on, trying to trap him and test him with his words. Then, as they leave the temple, uh, Jesus, for the last time, leaves the temple. He notices a woman putting the last few of her copper pennies into the treasury. And as he leaves, the disciples speak about the glorious buildings of the temple. And Jesus says, This whole place is going to be judged by God within a generation because of the rebellion of the nation of Israel not receiving the Messiah when he came. He returns over the Mount of Olives and back to Bethany. Well, on this Thursday, he again went back over that mountain into Jerusalem, and now he's having this Last Supper, and their feet are covered in dirt. Their feet are disgusting. And normally what would happen is you sit down at that table and you wait for the the doulos, right? The slave, the servant would come in, and the servant was a low position, and the servant would take up the proper attire and get this basin and fill it with water and begin to wash the feet of the disciples. We're used to washing hands before we eat. Well, they were into washing feet before they had their meals because their feet were the dirtiest part of their body, and that's what they were expecting. And as the disciples sat down in this upper room, there was no servant who got up to serve the others. 
Perhaps there was a time where Jesus allowed there to be silence. I don't know how long that might have lasted, but none of the disciples were going to get up and stoop to those kinds of levels to wash each other's feet. They're going to have a debate in just a minute as to which of them is the greatest. They're definitely not about to get down and wash feet. They want their feet to be washed by someone else, no doubt. And then the most shocking moment occurs that they could have imagined. Jesus gets up, removes his outer garment, gets the basin, fills it with water, and he begins to go near the first disciple. And he motions for the feet of the first disciple. I don't know which disciple would have been first, but Jesus begins with a disciple. And he begins to make his way around the table. And as he does, the towel becomes more dirty and grotesque. The water in the basin becomes more murky and dark with all the soil and dirt and grime that was filling it. And finally, Jesus makes his way to Peter. You know it's going to be good when Jesus gets to Peter every time. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Let me just say here, there are many things in the Christian life that at the time in which they happen, we do not understand. There are many things that happen in life where you say, I I don't know why the Lord is allowing this or bringing this into my life. I don't know what He's up to. But there will be a time in which we will understand. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Someone pointed out that Jesus, Peter first says, Lord, do you wash my feet? His next statement is, you will never wash my feet. You see any contradiction between those two statements? Lord, what are you doing? And then, Lord, you can't wash my feet. Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Well, if he's Lord, you can't say never, can you, <laughs> to him? So Jesus says, you're my Lord, you're my boss, you tell me what to do, but I'm going to tell you what to do. Don't wash my feet. And Jesus, of course, in his graciousness, uh, says this to Peter. Verse, middle of verse 8, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Just stop there. Jesus says, if if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Clearly, this is a symbolic act, is it not? Jesus getting down to wash their feet, yes, he is truly doing a menial act, but it is representative of the much greater menial act he will be doing within 24 hours' time of this moment. Jesus is giving them a little taste of the cross. See, on the cross is where Jesus takes all of our dirt and sin and defilement onto himself. And if Peter has a hard time with Jesus washing his dirty feet, then Peter's going to have a really hard time with the next 24 hours. Because Jesus is saying, if you think this is a low and menial act of service, Peter, you don't understand what is coming tomorrow. I am going to stoop far lower. I'm going to do something far more repulsive. I'm not going to take physical dirt and remove it. I'm going to take the moral impurity of your soul onto myself, and I am going to take the guilt and the punishment for your sin, and I'm going to wash it away. I'm going to cast it away as far as the east is from the west, and I'm going to give you eternal cleansing in the presence of our Holy Father. That's what I'm going to do. So, Peter, you've got to let me wash your feet. You've got to let me take your imperfections onto myself. You've got to let me cleanse you, or you have no share with me. And Peter begins to sort of get the message again, verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. You got to love Peter, don't you? Peter just jumps in with both feet, even when he doesn't know what he is jumping into. So Peter says, Lord, don't dare wash my feet. A moment later, Lord, give me a full bath, okay? (laughs) Head, feet, and toes, give me the whole bath. And so Peter flip-flops dramatically here, but Jesus says, no, the one who has bathed has no need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not Judas. So here's the point, I believe. We We are saved, we are made right with God once and only once. We don't get saved more than once. We don't get converted truly to Christ more than one time. True conversion is a one-time event, and it is a lasting change that lasts into eternity. And what Jesus is saying is, once we have been cleansed once, once our sins have been washed away once, there is no need for a bath except to wash your feet. I think he's saying, once you have been forgiven, you've been forgiven, but that doesn't mean we ignore the day-in, day-out failings of the Christian. We still have our day-in, day-out confessions of our sin, our daily foot washing before the Lord, our daily need to say, Lord, I failed. I failed to love my neighbor as myself. I failed to pray without ceasing. I failed on and on. I lost my temper, whatever it may be. And we need to ask for a continual cleansing of our daily sins. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Well, let's uh, begin to move forward here. Skip ahead with me. And look at verse 30. Judas here has been picked out. Jesus gives him uh, the piece of uh, the morsel of bread, saying that he was the one who would betray him. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It was night. Now, if you remember John's gospel, John is going to tell us a whole lot about this meal. Chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, 16, and 17 all take place in the upper room arguably, all take place in the upper room, or at least take place around the upper room, around that same time period. And uh, that's a whole lot of detail about one evening of conversation. You will notice when you read any of the Gospels that the closer you get to the the cross, the more everything slows down. Uh, Mark spends about half his Gospel on the the last week of Jesus' life, about a little less. Uh, Luke, starting in chapter 9, has Jesus walking toward Jerusalem all the way until chapter 22. So do you see Luke's emphasis from chapter 9 all the way to 22? Jesus is making one long journey to Jerusalem. Luke is telling us something about the importance of the end of the story. Uh, Matthew has a large portion in the last week of Jesus' life, but John may take the cake. John splits his gospel into two halves, chapters 1 through 12 and chapters 13 to 21. And chapters 1 through 12 includes all of Jesus' life up until the last week, And chapter 13 through 18 takes place in one evening. Is John telling you something? He spends almost half his gospel on today, Thursday night. And he spends a few more chapters on Friday and then on Sunday later this weekend. So John is telling us about the importance of this particular weekend. 
Now, I haven't done one of these in a while. I want to try to put a slide up on the screen. And let's see here. Try one more time. If you guys can put the map up, uh, the, it's, it's the draw, the map, uh, one more, that, that one right there. So if you, if you look at this uh, particular map of the city, I don't think I'll be able to draw on it right now, but I'll just, I'll step to the side and I'll point. So in the upper part of the picture there is the most likely location of the, uh, the Last Supper. It's hard to pin these things down. Archaeologists have debates. But the, 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 the majority view is that the Last Supper would happen in the upper city, uh, up in that part of the region. And when Judas left, Judas went uh, not that far away to where Annas and Caiaphas' home likely was and began to uh, get together with the leaders there so that they could arrest Jesus later that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Jesus and his disciples, when they leave the upper room, make their way down south of the temple probably. That We know they cross the Kidron Valley to the right there because John tells us that detail uh, in his gospel. And when he begins to cross the Kidron Valley... Um, they then make their way up to the very top right corner of the picture there, and that's where the Garden of Gethsemane uh, is located on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. To this day, you can go there and visit the approximate location of where that was. Jesus is over in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is going to be happening late in the evening. So we're, we're told that when Judas left the room, it was already nighttime. Uh, I checked, just Googled, uh, sunset in Jerusalem in April happens at 7 p.m. So that means Judas left around 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, and Jesus stays for several more chapters. So we're probably talking 10.30 at night or so before they leave the upper room, I'm kind of guessing. So around 10.30 at night, they make about a 30-minute walk outside. This is a huge area. It may not look big. It's a huge area. They make their way out to the Garden of Gethsemane. During this time, uh, Judas is making his way to try to talk with the leadership there so they can get Roman soldiers to try to uh, arrest Jesus. And uh, they would have made their way. Let me see if this is working now. Um, so Jesus is out in this area in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is that showing up? Okay. So Judas would have made his way to the Fortress of Antonia, which is the Roman group right here at the corner of the Temple Mount. He would have gotten about 200 soldiers, we're told, uh, from the Gospels, and they would have made their way probably out this direction to meet Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This would have been probably around midnight or perhaps even later in, in the night uh, after Jesus has been praying there. When they arrest Jesus, they then take Jesus, and again, there's debates about the routes precisely, but they probably bring Jesus back to this area. Anna and Caiaphas' home is probably somewhere in this area. And what they do is they start sending Jesus from home to home. Annas and Caiaphas were relatives, and they seem to share a courtyard where Peter denies Jesus. And so Jesus goes from one house to the other, and then he in the morning is going to be sent to Pilate. Pilate was probably staying here in what used to be Herod's palace on the far western side of Jerusalem. That's almost likely where Jesus was seen by Pilate in the morning, and also where Jesus would have been scourged. He was also sent to Herod, who was probably in the Hasmonean palace nearby. So he was probably sent to Herod here, and then was sent immediately back to Pilate uh, over here in the palace. So Jesus ends up in this place when he is probably receiving his scourging. And I'm just going to go with the traditional view here, but Jesus was probably crucified. I'm going to go with the traditional site of Golgotha, just outside of the western old wall of the city in what is a rock quarry. Uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is in that position today, and I know there's debates about this, but there is a, to this day, there's a, there's a piece of unquarried rock that is jutting up where people believe the crucifixion likely happened. I know there's discussions on that, and that would have been also in a garden area. See, when they quarry rock, rock that's unusable gets left in its place, and then they end up 
basically making a garden out of that area, and it looks like there's evidence of uh, some of that rock being used as tombs so that the tombs would be cut out and Jesus would have been likely uh, buried in that, in that area, uh, that part of Jerusalem. Now, let, let's return here. I, I want to go to a different passage for just a moment. So turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 26. This is just after the the Last Supper. Mark 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now I want to read a quote from a book called The Cross-Centered Life. Uh, Listen to this. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson begins this, uh, he doesn't write the book, he's quoted, by saying, The Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. And the author writes this, Gethsemane is a moment that floors us, a change so abrupt, so pronounced that it shocks our very soul. When we look at Jesus in the pages of the unfolding gospels, allowing ourselves to walk closely alongside him through those three exciting years of ministry, words like authoritative, assured, and fearless truly describe him. He's unfailingly steady and controlled. But there comes a moment as we follow him into a place called Gethsemane when all this is radically changed. Suddenly, we encounter a savior, a savior we're unfamiliar with. What we observe is foreign and frightening. Jesus ba- began to be greatly distressed and troubles, troubled, Mark's gospel tells us. He began to be gripped by a shuddering terror and to be in anguish, as one translation renders it. Other versions use words like horror, deep alarm, dismay. This is a consuming, crushing agony for our Savior, utterly unlike anything we've previously observed from Him. So as Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane, what is the purpose of this in in the plan of God? Well, it's been pointed out uh, this by a pastor from long ago. Do you remember Daniel's three friends that get the names uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel? Uh, When they disobey the king's order, what are they asked to do? They are asked to come see the king's 
cup of wrath, right? They come, they come see the king's fiery furnace, and they say, listen, we're going to show you the furnace at point-blank range. You're going to come stand right next to it, and you're going to see how horrifying a fate you will have from the king's wrath if you do not do what the king says. You need to know full well what consequences you are facing with the decision you're about to make. You don't make a decision out of ignorance. We're going to show you exactly what you're facing, and if you don't do what we say, you're going to be thrown into this fiery furnace of the king's wrath. And they see that fiery furnace, and they know full well the consequences, and they say, the Lord uh, can save us, He will save us, and even if He doesn't save us, we're not going to bow down to you or serve you, king. And so they go back, and they play the music, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego seem to be the only people out there not bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and so Nebuchadnezzar is infuriated, and he gets his soldiers to throw them in, and he, he, he says for it to be heated seven times hotter. And his strong men who throw them in, remember, even they die from the heat just throwing in these three Jewish men. And of course, they survive. The angel appears in their midst. What was the purpose of that preview of the judgment before they make their choice? It was to let them know full well the decision that they were going to make. Now, Jesus and His humanity is put in the Garden of Gethsemane so that He can see the cup, not of a wicked king like Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus comes face to face with the holy and righteous wrath of God Almighty against sinful people like you and I. And Jesus is placed right outside the cup of God's wrath. He sees the king's furious, raging fire of righteous wrath, and Jesus comes face to face with it in Gethsemane. And so he has to make a decision. And I read in some archaeologists talking about this place, this location there in the Garden of Gethsemane out there on the right. You know, that's right next to the path he walks every day back to Bethany when he spends the night and then comes back. Bethany's about less than a mile away or about a mile and a half away. Jesus could leave by simply walking over the top of the hill, going down, and he would be gone. He could, as easy as walking over the hill, he could disappear into the Judean wilderness and he would never be captured by anyone. So Jesus is sitting there at the place where David escaped when he was running, fleeing away. King Zedekiah tried to escape before exile and was caught with his sons near Jericho, and he was later horribly treated by the Babylonians. But this is the the way kings escape in the Old Testament. You go over the Mount of Olives and you get out of town. You try to get away. Jesus is right now facing the ultimate temptation. He is looking at God's righteous wrath against our sin, and he is looking right into that blazing furnace, and he has a choice to make. Will he stay and obey God? and drink that judgment himself, even though he never sinned? Or will he escape over the Mount of Olives into the night and never be heard from again and never have to face the cross? That's, That's right here in front of him at this particular moment. And Jesus begins to sound unlike the way we normally hear Jesus. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This is the Jesus who during the storm at sea, was sleeping in the boat while the seasoned fishermen were panicked. This is the Jesus who, when he encounters demon-possessed men in a graveyard, is completely calm, and actually the demons are afraid of him. That's the Jesus that we are dealing with. And suddenly Jesus is in an emotional state that we are not used to seeing him in. He's in a state of deep distress and agony. Luke tells us these famous words, Luke says, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, there's a debate on whether 
he was actually sweating blood, which is a possibility. It's a medical possibility. Or if he was just sweating as if he had an open, bloody wound. Either way, he was sweating profusely in this garden. And we're told in John 18, 18, that it was a cold night. The Roman soldiers, uh, tough people, they gathered around a charcoal fire to warm themselves. That's how cold the night was. And yet Jesus, by himself, isolated in a garden on a cool evening, is sweating profusely, and he is sweating as if it was great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then Luke says, uh, it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Jesus is in an agony here. But Jesus, of course, commits to doing God the Father's will. Look again at Mark 14, verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. But not what I will, but what you will. I want to read another excerpt from this uh, book. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is saying, Father, I willingly drink this cup by your command. I will drink all of it. And he will. He will drink all of it, leaving not a drop. Not only will he leave nothing in that cup of wrath for us to drink, but today you and I find ourselves with another cup in our hands. It is the cup of salvation. From this precious new cup, we find ourselves drinking and drinking. Drinking consistently, drinking endlessly, drinking eternally. For the cup of salvation is always full and overflowing. We can drink from this cup only because Jesus spoke those words about the other cup. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I will drink it all. As we watch Jesus pray in agony in Gethsemane, He has every right to turn His tearful eyes towards you and me and to shout, this is your cup. You're responsible for this. It's your sin. You drink it. This cup should rightfully be thrust into my hands and yours. Instead, Jesus freely takes it Himself so that from the cross He can look down at you and me, whisper our names, and say, I drain this cup for you, for you who have lived in defiance of me, who have hated me, who have opposed me. I drink it all for you. This is what our sin makes necessary. This is what's required by your pride and my pride, by your disobedience and my disobedience. Behold Him, behold His suffering, and recognize His love. Turn with me to Mark 15, the next chapter, starting in verse 16. Mark 15, starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Let me just say here as a note, Mark only mentions this. He says, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. People have said, why would he add those words? We we have no idea who those people are. Well, it's very likely, can't be proven, it's very likely that uh, some of or all three of those men had become Christians since this event. And what Mark is probably saying to the churches he's writing to is, you guys have heard of Alexander and Rufus, haven't you? This is his dad. 
It's a way of footnoting something as a historical reliability. So he's like, you guys know Alexander Rufus? His father, uh, Simon of Cyrene, he is the one who actually carried the cross. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It, it is interesting, verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Probably there was a slight degree of mercy included in this offering of this wine. Uh, it could have perhaps deadened a little bit of the pain, uh, but Jesus refuses to even take any kind of painkiller, any kind of thing that would lessen his sense of the full weight of judgment that he's going to experience. He will not drink it. He refuses it, and they cast lots for his garments. Verse 25, and it was the third hour, that's about 9 a.m., when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the son of the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with, with him also reviled him. You will see there that initially both thieves were mocking Jesus, but one was later converted, probably no less than two or three hours after these events. The other thief was converted, no doubt seeing how Jesus was acting. Verse, 20, verse 33, and when the sixth hour, that's about noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sambachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. When Jesus dies on the cross, he experiences in that darkness the full measure of God's wrath against our sin. Uh, if you have time, I, I recommend, you may have seen this, there's an R.C. Sproul sermon from 2008. Uh, if you look it up, it is called, I think it's called the, the Curse Motif and the Atonement, I believe is the name of the sermon. The, the Curse Motif and the Atonement. It's about an hour-long sermon where he focuses on what it meant for Jesus to become a curse for us, for him to bear God's judgment. And uh, it is an unbelievably powerful and wonderful message. He uses both Old Testament and New Testament connections in order to fully, as fully as we can, explain what all that means. And here, here was a moment that struck me in that message. Um, I was, I was actually present when he, when he gave this message. It's one of the few conferences I was able to go to. So I actually, I heard this live and I was in tears at the end of this particular message. But there's a moment where R.C. Uh, was sitting there and he said this. He began his message by saying the, essentially this. He had, been, he, had been just, he had been a Christian now for just over 50 years when he was speaking, 2008. He said, I have been studying the crucifixion of Jesus for more than half a century now. He said, I've read a whole host of books on the nature of the atonement and Words like propitiation, that Jesus bore God's wrath for us. And he said, 
I have a suspicion, he said, in fact, I know that when my eyes open in heaven, in the first five minutes of my experience there, and by the way, he went to heaven in December of 2017, so he actually has had this experience in reality now. He said, I know that when I open my eyes in heaven, in the first five minutes, there will be an overwhelming growth in my understanding of the statement, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He said, we don't even have a clue of what Christ went through. And then 50 minutes later in the sermon, as he's concluding, he comes back to his main point. And there's this moment, R.C. Sproul, if you know him, does not get emotional very easily when he's preaching. He rarely ever does he tear up or get emotional or his voice crack when he's speaking. He doesn't normally, that's not the way he's wired. But all of a sudden, at the very end of his talk, R.C. gets quiet. And I've rewatched this part over and over again. But R.C. is talking about what Jesus did. And he just goes completely silent. And he's sort of rubbing his forehead. And he's staring off in, in the distance for a minute. And he said, uh, he said, essentially, we don't have the slightest clue of what those words mean, that Jesus was forsaken by God the Father. He said, I told you at the beginning, I've been studying this for half a century. He said, I can't begin to plumb the depths of that statement, that Jesus was abandoned, that He was forsaken by God the Father. He said, but I know it's true. He said, I know that it's the hope that we need. So if, if, if you do not know the Lord Jesus, anyone under the sound of my voice, the center of that Christian faith is that Jesus endured the full measure of God's judgment on the cross, abandonment by the Father, so that we would never have to be abandoned, so that we would never be left or abandoned or forsaken by God, all because of Christ's finished work for us. Let's bow our heads, and then we're going to sing, uh, we're going to have communion, and then we're going to sing two songs together. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you so loved the world that you sent your Son that you abandoned your son, that you forsook him on the cross as he bore our sin in his body on the tree. God, I pray now as we come to this table that you would humble us by that message, that you would also affirm us with your love, which is beyond description and beyond words. I pray that if there's sin that we need to repent of, that we would repent of it even now in this very moment. I pray that you would refresh us about what these elements point to, which is the brutal death in our place that Jesus endured for us. I pray you'd be honored in these next few minutes as we sing as well. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.